Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Thank you for listening to the Evoking History Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Elena Anton, a lecturer in sociology and PhD candidate. How are you doing today, Elena? I'm doing great, Ben. How are you? I am doing as fantastic as I can as a Southern boy in a Northern city when the winter is starting to roll in. <laughs> Which means I'm sitting here in sweatpants and a hoodie, and it's only the second day of October as we record this, and normally I'd still be in shorts and a tank top back home. I mean, to be fair, I'm actually in a sweatshirt and sweatpants, and it's only the second day. <laughs> right. Anything below 68, it's... No bueno. Well, it's like, uh, <laughs> gosh, it's it might be up to 50 here, so this morning no thank you yeah <laughs> well it, it could be much worse but anyway uh people did not tune in for a weather talk uh <laughs> please uh give us a brief introduction of yourself because i barely scratched the surface okay so like you said i'm a i'm a sociology lecturer i i have been teaching sociology for about 10 years but more importantly I've been doing activism around abortion rights, reproductive justice. I am a supporter of um, an armed proletariat and an unarmed state. Stop, stop. I'm trying to do like, like as much like activism as I can. I, I moved, I'm a native Georgian, but living in South Carolina actually trying to like find my place up here in in South Carolina like Atlanta is the hub of a lot of activism and there's just not that there's really not that up here like there's a little bit in Greenville so just trying to find yeah. my place to like support working people and the the causes that um, that help make their lives better our lives better. sure so let's back up a little bit and uh, talk about your academic path and how you got to where you are, and then we'll get more into the activism. Okay, so once upon a time, I was a vocalist. It was actually my plan. I really wanted to be a jazz vocalist. And somewhere about my third year, I went to Shorter, well, it's now Shorter University, but it was Shorter College when I went there. Um, and you know, a, a, a music degree, is a lot of work. I don't think people realize it is, it's really difficult. And it, it just, like it stopped being joyful. Sure. Um, and so I started like thinking about, you know, kind of the reason that, that a liberal arts education is supposed to include all these different subjects 
kind of did what it was supposed to do. So I took a, you know, a, a intro to sociology course and I don't even remember hardly anything about it. I don't even remember my professor's name because it was so long ago, but it kind of got me on the path. I thought I wanted to do social work. Um, and then I, I just went with sociology and as the discipline has grown and, and stretched, um, I think being an activist now is almost a part of that, at least for my generation and those coming up after me. Yeah. I had some very unwell years in my 20s. And so I tried to go back to school a couple of times. And then I had my son and um, became a single mom and went back to school because that was actually the, the most financially stable option was for me to go back to school and I just never left <laughs> and I'm just I've actually been driving around thinking like okay so my plan is to finish this PhD by the end I have two goals for, for the next year and the first one is to finish this degree and I'm thinking I'm reading I'm currently listening to a people's history of the supreme court and I'm like should I go to law school because that's you. what we need I tell you that I am having that same debate, honestly, about law school, because I really do think that especially, I don't have to tell you or our listeners, but the academic job market is effectively non-existent. And I, I think yeah. the economic downturn from COVID is just going to exacerbate that. Um, uh, I think the numbers I saw from the American Historical Association was 900 new history PhDs this year for... I'll be charitable and say 60 jobs. And I don't think it's actually that high. No. And this is not to denigrate people who want to get their PhD. It's just, you have to go in with blinders. The, the, the chances of you becoming a faculty track um, or tenure track, excuse me, faculty are pretty slim. So you need to do it to develop the skills that you want to use in other ways. And as I become more active in activism, especially in research of far right movements and everything like that, I do think that having a legal understanding from law school, it might be the way to go as much as I do not really want to spend another two to three years beyond the PhD. I thought you were going to say two to $300,000, but you know, year two, that's fine. Uh, I grew up poor. I can be poor till I die. I'm going to be poor till I die. So that doesn't oh, necessarily phase me, yeah. but it's just the, the lifetime that the time that I could be using doing other things, spending it with my family and friends in ways that I haven't over the last decade while I'm pursuing education, you know? Yeah. For sure. I, I generally, um, like I, I kind of like, you know, joke, laugh it off but when my own students ask me about graduate school um I think there's a lot of value in a master's degree um especially if you're in a position to knock it out in like four semesters which it for a lot of disciplines is not possible but for something like sociology and maybe is possible yeah I mean I just I just went back to back to back semesters and like wrote my thesis in you know 
probably the equivalent of like five marathon sit down writing sessions, which of course, um, you know, your, your PhD is generally not gonna be, it's not gonna be possible to do that though. I am actually, I, I rented an RV <laughs> in Brevard for our fall break next week. And I'm like locking myself in to see how much of this proposal I can get written. But yeah. I, I laugh it off and they asked me about grad school. I, um, I, I generally tell them don't, don't do it. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of value in pursuing a master's degree for the education. Um, but I'm, there are a couple of other decisions about the next year coming up that are not like fully fledged out that I would want to like express outside of my family, but, um, my values, um, as my values become more less the less I care about a tenure track position, um, especially because my research area is um, Appalachia and you know rural sociology just kind of generally. Um, like how, my, my advisor, when we were like last talking about my dissertation just asked me like this amazing question and she said how is your dissertation helping the people that you want to help that's a great question how is being a tenure track professor doing anything for working people in the mountains and i'm just not sure that it does so i'm just not sure that i care anymore Um, yeah no that's totally fair i mean and i never really I didn't do this to become a faculty member, but I know a lot of people do enter grad school with that thought, that picture yeah. in their head. And, you know, as, as far as helping working class people being a tenured faculty, well, I mean, that's one of the things that you always hear is that uh, people tenure track fac- or tenured faculty have all this power and the security that they should be able to leverage and help other people. And honestly, I think education should, instead of, us paying hundreds of thousands of dollars and even people who are just getting an undergrad play paying tens of thousands of dollars, perhaps a hundred thousand, that it should be free. And in that way, if we could work towards that model, then I think mm-hmm. having you could do more as a tenure track because you are able to be a representation to people. For sure. You know, but whether the, it's oh go ahead. I was just gonna say that um I you know if if tenure would be tenure but not be tenure like if we could just get rid of some of the faculty and I don't you know get rid sounds like really awful and I don't you know I think part of like working class values are that like you you mean I do see human value in every other human Mm -hmm. but please would you please retire yeah. I think like the number one thing I could ask any, you know, older tenured person who who like and, and which I think is 
maybe ages. I, I don't know. I just, there is a demographic that continues to like, you know, be tenured and, you know, it's not black academics. It's not Latinx academics. It's not women. Um, and it's definitely not poor and working class first gen academics. If we could fill all the tenure positions with everybody else, that would be great. But I don't know that, um, I just don't know that I want to spend the time of like, you know, your, your application packet and I don't know, just all these ways that like, a, like different pieces of paper, um, like make you uh, like make you a somehow better or more important like all these ways that I need to show something written down that I'm qualified to do x y or z um it's it's like the one profession that requires you to write a dissertation and then like submit a whole different dissertation just to get hired for a job, right? I mean, I have a right. whole, um, you know, folder in my Google Drive that is, you know, professional packet basically, which is like my diversity statement and my teaching philosophy and, you know, my CV and blah, blah, blah. And then now they're asking for, for a, to make it seem like, now there's like the diversity statement but then there's no, like another statement about like inclusion because all these um, universities want to pay lip service to, um, you know, a, a, the social, uh, you know, civil movements that are happening right now. So you got to write another thing and like, I could tell you whatever I want on a piece of paper. Yeah. Like, am I actually doing those things? I don't right. know. I, I'm really big. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I agree with you because I feel that it is much easier to look at somebody's background and see what they've done than to see what they they say they're going to do on a piece of paper. Yeah. And a lot of the background, like, you know, I mean, you know, the little area of like, you know, community service or, you know, services discipline, like a lot of stuff that is important to me is really not great to put on your CV <laughs> um, because it's, it's still like a little too out there. I mean, I'm not shy about my um, work volunteering um, around like abortion care. And I actually do put that on my CV because there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and it, it's one of the, I think, few volunteer opportunities that like, I can literally see, you know, something that I have committed to do help an actual person. But when I'm asked about it in interviews, it's always like this, it's like the weirdest conversation. So, you know, they want, they say they want these things, but they don't really, I don't think they really want those things. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a perception that academia is very left-leaning. 
And I think that. And all that, of us just think that's so hilarious. I know. I know. I think that. I think that there are individual professors who are, but the institution itself definitely isn't. It is incredibly oh, conservative. conservative and resistant yeah. to change. Yeah, I think the um, the idea that it, it's so again, so again, I'm listening to this um, this book, and that, now that I've like shouted it out twice, I got to tell you like who wrote it because it sounds like it's up your alley it is called it's by peter irons who i guess uh kind of did what we were talking about like guys phd in political science and then went to law school yeah um and so and then like does um work with like howard zinn about uh, the academy being conservative so i'm listening to this and it's talking about um uh, like it's it's laying the foundation um, for the history of the Supreme Court, and a lot of that is like the history of the country. So there's a lot of like yeah. during the Continental Congress kind of stuff. And one of the points that that he talks about is, um, you know, what uh, I guess Princeton was originally the College of New Jersey. Is that right? Probably. Um, and just these like old white men pontificating from the lectern, like there was no neutrality there was no objectivity like I don't know where when that um you know that that idea that that's what should happen from the front of the classroom came about but that's not how it started nobody ever expected it to be that way when they went to college and then somehow this idea crept in that education should be neutral whatever mm -hmm. that means or objective which is like not possible um and then i guess over the last 30 years we've had this like pushback against um you know so, somehow that like education is like elitist yeah um and so anybody who like wants to be in the the academy must be like leftist or liberal, even though most of my professors I either didn't know or they were very obviously not. Yeah. They were either center or right. Yeah, I, I'd say that that's uh, a fairly accurate description of mine. There are some people who are like that I've learned with who have been very left, but they've been very open about that. So mm -hmm. I would agree that you, the majority of your educators or my educators um, either were center, right, some extreme left, but the majority of them, you wouldn't know because they didn't talk about their politics in their lecture. Now, what you, you will find as you go through the processing and you learn more and you read more, you can begin to tease out people's politics by what yeah. they say and how they present stuff. Right. I mean, because that, that comes down to, to word choice. Do you call something a protest or you call something a riot? Right. So. Or even what you choose to teach, right? Like right. Not, so my I, I actually start my semester with a lecture about the myth of objectivity 
mm-hmm. um, and that you know every person has an agenda unless you just don't care about anything and I mean I'm, I'm sure those people exist but usually they're not professors right. um, and just just by the basic you know what you choose to teach says something about you know who you are mm-hmm. um you know it's like this I have a you know who is my favorite sociological theorist well of course I'm going to spend more time on that person because like I like them right <laughs> like I like their yeah. ideas um that you know anytime we're talking about something that's interesting to us we want to talk about it a lot so just the the choice between one sociologist spending two lectures on Marx and half a lecture on Durkheim says something yeah totally I mean like I absolutely tell my students that you know just even when you're in biology like a person who has their own lab made a choice about what they wanted to research and that choice is informed by every part of who they are. Yep. And I'm just open about that instead of, I mean, some of my rate, my professor remarks are pretty funny. <laughs> it's been a while. I try to, I, I, I don't look at it anymore, but, but one of them I think was talking about like how far left I am and that I'm crazy. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I am both of those things like I'm very upfront about like you know I I have mental illness and I am also probably more far left than you think I am I do a similar thing with bias in my <laughs> classes in that I try to get them over the that bias is a negative word when it really is just denoting preference yeah because yeah because when you're I go you're going to be looking at primary sources but you have to remember think about your own life and the things that you see every day what you choose to record what is important to you well that's bias and it doesn't necessarily it can be something incredibly negative but it doesn't necessarily have to be it's all about the 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 constructed lenses that you view the world through and we all All have them yeah. I mean, if you didn't have any bias, I mean, I feel like just as an alive person, like having, you know, being discerning, I mean, these are all just different words for the same thing, right? Like being discerning, prejudice, bias, like it just, like you said, it means, you know, a preference or what you choose to pay attention to, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, a method of, you know, it's a survival tactic. Um, I'm going to pay attention to this thing because it's dangerous and not this thing because it's benign. Um, But of course, what we each view, like what I think is dangerous is going to be very different from my across the street neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. He probably thinks I'm the dangerous one. So you had said that you had two goals, and I think I kind of hijacked it. We talked about the one. So what was the second goal? So my first goal uh, is to finish this PhD. Um, and my second goal is we want to buy a house. Um, not because I 
I actually never cared about owning a house, mm-hmm. but it's related to how I'm feeling about academia. My um, my girlfriend and I have talked kind of since we we got together about having enough space to take in queer youth who are like aging out of the system. Yeah. You know, and outside of like governmental oversight, like literally, are you aging out and you need a place to stay? Like, and so really getting serious about looking for a place that has, you know, like two extra bedrooms than we need and maybe a little bit of property. I need to see that like all of this education that I have gone into tons of debt for is like doing something for somebody. And I love my students and I absolutely think that like teaching is a a moral responsibility. I mean, for me, I I don't, you know, that's up to other people, but how they feel about that for themselves but I you know and and I think that we as teachers have this like amazing opportunity with this kind of passive audience right to um you know bring to light issues of you know systemic racism um you know classism ableism like all forms of oppression and I always want to be able to teach but my advisor asked me like, what is it, you know, how, how is what you're, how is this project helping the people that you want to help? And I don't need to do more research to be able to do that. I just need to do this research and get done with this mm-hmm. degree so that I can take that, you know, so I can keep it moving. Yeah. Because I don't know what the Appalachian Studies Association has like, you know, done for Appalachians as a whole. But I don't feel like the academy in general just like has a habit of, you know, actively, well, of activism. I mean, like that's kind of a, I guess, more modern perspective. Yeah, a a friend of mine. You're the historian, so I really don't know the answer to that. (laughs) Well, that's okay. Um, A a friend of mine uses the term uh, ethnographic voyeurism. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of I our colleagues, that. yeah, I do too. That's a great term. So I use it whenever I can. Uh, I, I think a lot of our colleagues in, in various disciplines are guilty of that. That if you are not actively trying to help the communities that you are studying, that's all you're doing is engaging mm-hmm. in ethnographic voyeurism. So I think that in probably the last 10 to 20 years, people have become more cognizant of that and almost. Well, I won't say everyone, but a, a majority of like the the faculty that I know and the graduate students that I interact with are engaged in activism with the communities that they study in some way. Yeah, and I think that that's very important. It, it you, know, you know whether you call that allyship or being a good human being, or well, however you want to frame <laughs> that, you know, not being an asshole. Um, I think it's very important that if we are going to look at these people and provide, use them to advance ourselves through our degrees and our careers and 
tell their story or do studies on them sociologically, we need to do something to give back to that community and try and better their situation. Because I can very easily, and I study political violence, so it's interesting that you bring up the, your, your work with abortion, because one of the things that I've, I've looked at is far-right anti-abortion extremism. So like the Army of God terrorist group that- Yeah, it's, um, it's 40 days of prayer right now. Yeah. So I don't know if you're Piper. This is Piper. Say hi. <laughs> hi. Okay, weirdo. Um, yeah, it's the 40 days of prayer right now. So um, it, I'm actually kind of on a, I'm on a break from that work right now. Um, 2020 has been, I know it's just, it, it's like a, it's pain is like new and different every day. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I I am not exactly sure like how bad it is at other clinics, but I know that the clinic in Greenville is like pretty bad right now, and um, the the clinics in like Greensboro and and um, Charlotte in North Carolina are are really getting overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, especially, unfortunately, with the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the forthcoming Supreme Court fight, and that's going to come out of that once they... I don't even... I, like, I, I'm so ambivalent about so... Not ambivalent, but, like, my feelings are... It, it's actually the opposite of ambivalent. Like, I so firmly believe that like just the the existence of the supreme court is kind of offensive <laughs> like the fact that nine people get to decide the rights of a human being or a class of human beings is like that's offensive to me um so like on the one hand i feel very like why does the Supreme Court even exist? But on the other hand, I mean, obviously I understand that there are real world consequences to, you know, her her death. And I mean, it, it really is like every day is a new and exciting um, catastrophe. Uh, you know, now I guess the White House is a COVID hotspot. <laughs> and yeah. so like if, If people don't get healthy before November third, um, like what does that mean? It's a good is, question. You know, I've I've seen some stuff. I mean, I'm definitely not a constitutional scholar, but I've seen some stuff on the on the Twitter app today that basically said, like, I mean, like I've heard the word the phrase constitutional crisis about five hundred thousand times since 2016, but <laughs> yeah, that like, apparently. Absolutely like the death of a candidate right before the election like constitutionally what does that mean i mean i I think it would just fall to pence and he would pick a new vice presidential candidate um so but i mean i don't know uh there might be a historical incident where I don't think any presidents have died while running for office. Most of them have had the uh, good sense to die after 
winning election. So <laughs> it's not this controversy. Um, but yeah, there's no telling. That. It's so convoluted, who knows? And, and oh, the yeah. thing about it is, especially in 2020 with the grist and the rumor mural, and you have the QAnon fucks, um, which I will stand by and report QAnon fucks um, <laughs> out there. I, I've seen so much conspiracy theorying around this whole thing with Trump coming down with COVID. There are some amongst uh, on the far right blogosphere who talk about this is all part of his secret plan to declare that he has got this virus so that he can go, that it's a fake virus that so he can go arrest Hillary Clinton. And then there are others who are saying, wow. Yeah, no, totally. (laughs) I am not deep enough into conspiracy (laughs) theory Twitter. I have really like got to up my game. Like this is so entertaining. And and on the next level (laughs) up, on the other side uh, of that echo chamber, there's the people who are like, so that wasn't a wire uh, that Biden was wearing during the debate to get the answers. That was a COVID spreading thing. And the, the <laughs> left is attempting to infect Trump because <laughs> they can't wow. beat him. I'm like, holy shit. I mean, I don't have any, um, you know, qualms about that. I mean, I don't, I always thought that he was going to um, serve two terms. Like it, if he does, if he, if he doesn't, I'll be, I mean, he may not serve out like a, a whole second of four yeah. years, but I'll actually be shocked if he if he doesn't win. Well, I mean, things are really changing really fast here, right? Uh, and I don't mean just the news today, um, but I, I think like the past like four to six weeks, it feels like the speed of light is like getting faster. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe I'm completely wrong. Uh, and that would be great for me to be completely wrong, even though I have no feelings of affection for Biden. Um, but it, it never, I just always, I just always thought he would serve two terms. But I also have not really thought that he was like any worse than any, he's just very outward about it. So like, you know, We've had lots of really, really terrible presidents who are like really bad people. Yeah, we have. Andrew Jackson is a person who existed. You know what I mean? (laughs) I I will say that I think Trump has been worse than other presidents in so far as he completely ignores the levers of power and just kind of does what he wants. So it's a creeping authoritarianism into fascism that I don't think necessarily other even far right presidents that we've had or right wing presidents or because we've never really had a leftist president despite what people will tell you um are you telling me that fdr was not a full-fledged communist sir i i am saying that (laughs) fdr was not a full-fledged communist nor was barack obama but uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that Trump presents a danger that other political figures, even bad ones that we've had, represents. I think that's mitigated a little bit by his own incompetence, because I do think that somebody who had any kind of political savvy or ability could have done more damage than he's done. Not that he hasn't done all kinds of damage, 
but I also think his disregard for everything and actually his complete lack of any core beliefs other than he's right and you're wrong and whatever benefits me um, is the way that we need to go. I mean, that's plenty damaging in and of itself, but I, I just think that I have often said in private conversation that I Pence scares me more than Trump because Pence knows how to play oh, the game. One hundred percent. Pence is competent. Yeah. And he, you know, created one of the worst um, HIV hotspots in Indiana when he was governor. There, you know, solely based on his religious beliefs and was absolutely able to, you know, for the most part, stick to his agenda, um, from what I understand, when he was governor. Like, I don't think that you can say that he's not smart. I mean, I think he's, I think he probably got into this uh, thinking it was going to go one way, and then it absolutely did not go that way because of what you just said, that, that Trump really has no um, he's not an ideologue, you know, right. he just, it, it, he just cares about like what's good for him and, and, his, and him and his, which I also think might be part of his popularity because a lot of people are really not that ideological. It's just, are me and mine okay? I yep. think Pence is very ideological and he and McConnell together, I, I, that's like Craven squared. <laughs> yeah, Trump is just a powermatic leptocrat, and not that there's not a danger in that, and I certainly hope that uh, he does not get another four terms to tear down the institutions, even though I think the institutions, in a lot of ways, deserve to be torn down. I just... Look, I want to tear them down my way. <laughs> right. I don't yeah. want him to do it. <laughs> well, because we've proven, and he's not the first white supremacist president that we've had either. But his willingness to signal to white nationalist militias to enforce or help out his campaign or his, you know, cult, if you will, that is built up around him outside the levers of the federal government. When he when he runs into an obstacle that he can't bully somebody into the federal government to do, like when he was trying to get the military to go into cities and everything, well, they wouldn't, didn't really necessarily want to do yeah. it. So, so he switches to his, yeah. So he switches to his people in the Department of Homeland Security who kind of operate in that quasi weird fucked up space that we've created since 9-11. And then also shouting out to militias. So yeah. he uses the, the, um, pernicious cult of white nationalism that still permeates this country to affect his agenda in a way that I think a purely political operative like somebody like Pence wouldn't necessarily do. No. However, on the flip side of that, because Pence is as, char- uh, as charismatic as this empty power bar wrapper that I have here, um, <laughs> he is not going to be able to get as much done with a popular and firing the base that Trump is able to, but Pence yeah. can manipulate through the levers of power in the government better. So it's... Yeah, I, I actually, like, it, you know, speaking of, like, charisma, like, Mitch McConnell is, like, completely, you know, same thing, like, yeah, you know, turtle face, like, <laughs> <laughs> like 
I mean, he's so goofy looking. It, it's it almost leads you to think that he's benign, but there, um, I can't remember. Um, it's not slow burn, but I can't remember the other podcast, but it was like the history, like his political history. And he has, he had these, like somebody writing a dissertation, he had these goals and he had this agenda and it was step by step by step. And it's super boring and super bureaucratic and so fucking dangerous. Yep. Like, and- so like neither of those guys have any charisma at all but and we're doing we're doing bureaucracy right now in my um in my intro class and that's one of the things I try to emphasize like everybody points to Nazi Germany but like everything really oppressive always comes down to can I put it on a piece of paper and make it look like it's not anything yeah uh, and, and control of the legal system. I mean, that's that's to me the back to the Supreme Court to kind of circle back to that because I think you, you're right. Um, and I understand why they wanted the, the separation when the founders set up the the governmental system. I understand that they wanted the three branches and everything, and they didn't actually make the Supreme Court quite as powerful as it was. That was the first Supreme Court justice whose name is escaping me. He's the one who decided, well, our oversight is final unless you change a a law, you know, unless you change the constitution or something. Actually, I think the quote is, we say what the law is. Yeah, yeah. So it's something very similar to that. But I mean, you know, the Republicans, and I understand this, the they they realize that they can't necessarily win the cultural war by popular vote. However, if they control the courts and how the laws are interpreted, that's the strategy. And they have been packing the courts like mad for a long time. I mean, almost that, well, fifty years now, really. Yeah, yeah, um, with, with just a couple of, and not necessarily great, but a couple of democratic turns in office by people oh. who are incredibly conservative they're incredibly conservative democrats that's why it drives me crazy this leftist talk because where fuck. is this leftist country like <laughs> yeah. me do it show me my people <laughs> i mean fdr might be the furthest left politician that we've ever had but he himself was pretty conservative and clinton was miles to the right of fdr Hell, he's miles to the right of Jimmy Carter. And I love Jimmy Carter, but Jimmy Carter really kind of disassembled a lot of the welfare states and stuff that FDR was going for because of austerity measures. Yeah. His, his, um, uh, Carter's presidency was just at the wrong time. Like I 100% and, and this is part of me just like, you know, Love, love, love for President Carter. Love for Governor Carter. Love, love for a boy from Plains, Georgia. Sure, um, I get it. But I do think that you know his liberalism combined with his genuine, like I think, love and compassion for other people. Like he could have done a lot, and it was just like from a global politics perspective, like the worst timing. <laughs> yeah, and one thing I will say, now that I kind of mildly bashed Carter, 
I will say that of all the presidents post-presidency, he is the only one who, and they all claim to be Christians, but he is probably the one who's most fully actually lived out the doctrine of Christianity and all his works that he's done. For sure. He still teaches Sunday school at his church. You can yeah. you can drive down to Plains, Georgia and sit in on Sunday school with President Carter if he makes it to service that day. Yeah. Um, he seems to actually be a good person as opposed to some of them. Yeah, or have just like checked out. I mean, you know, he he's still like super um, involved. Like, if you know, if he's asked for his opinion, like he gives it. Well, he's still out there in his 90s working for, uh, yeah. I can't remember the name of the organization, Habitat for Homes uh, or Habitat. Homes for Humanity. Habitat for Humanity, yeah. Habitat, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and out there doing carpentry work. I mean, God bless yeah. the man. <laughs> so. Yeah. What was I going to say? I can't remember. Well, I don't know. But the last thing before we went off on, on kind of this tangent was your desire to get a home and kind of operate as, uh, <laughs> these are clunky terms, so don't take any offense to them, nah. but somewhere between something beyond, I should say, a foster home and a halfway house. Yes, and that, and that's actually perfect. So my mom was a foster parent, and that's actually what, um, one of the biggest reasons I chose not to go into social work, because, um, I, I mean, you know, mental, mental health, like getting, getting to full mental, you know, mental health and stability is a journey for sure. But there's no way at that time that I would have been able to walk into a house and like do a home visit and see like a child being mistreated and like not lose my mind. Um, because, you know, she, she chose um, or she asked for um, placements mostly to the older kids because older kids are harder to place and you know she was you know a single working woman so daycare and all that stuff like she couldn't do so she wanted older kids um and being around them um I was I was already in college but being around them really uh, like obviously expanded my empathy but I just knew that that um was not for me um, but that is definitely like where I started to see the cracks in the system beyond just, we don't give foster parents enough money to like actually parent children who, who have a lot of needs. Um, but she actually adopted, um, one of her foster children right before they aged out or um, because of the like financial crack there. And I, I, I don't remember, I mean, I was pretty young, so I, I'm not sure about all the bureaucracy that goes along with that. But I know that queer kids are, are um, already super vulnerable. And now you're telling them that they no longer have any support and there, there's all this um, funding for things like college and even like getting your own like first apartment. But these are not children who have been given any education on how to navigate 
bureaucracy. I feel like I'm going to say the word bureaucracy like a hundred thousand times, but that is so often the thing that is in the way. Yeah. Um, like, so earlier this year, we invited our younger cousin, um, my, my, my girlfriend's younger cousin to come stay with us. Um, she is from a really small town in Alabama and COVID had just started and like it went from no opportunity there to like negative opportunity um uh in the town and also you know some some family stuff so we we invited her to come stay with us and you know she could have stayed with us longer but just she basically moved up here got a job saved up money is paying has like paid off some personal debt and like a month ago moved out uh and in with a friend like 10 minutes away and just knowing that we could provide a place where we could say you know please contribute to the household you know this amount if you can and here are some goals that we would like for you to work towards and then to see her do those things and move out ahead of the schedule that she had set for herself. I mean, we we didn't tell her she had to like get out. I mean, that just was that's way more rewarding than like did reviewer two like my paper. <laughs> well, sure, it is it's a much more deliberate impact. That might not be the best term for it, but I mean, it, because I. Teaching, like you said, is super rewarding and seeing your your students accomplish something that they didn't think that they would or you know, then make revisions to a paper and do a really good job and be proud of it and everything like that, reach their goals. Um, before I came up here and started graduate school, I worked as a tutor at a community college and seeing people who were coming in who maybe didn't finish high school and everything else for tutoring and it's like I just suck at math or I suck at this or whatever yeah. and, and working with them and seeing like, them no overcome. you don't <laughs> yeah yeah totally <laughs> and and seeing them overcome this thing that they've been dreading and and get the degree that they never thought they'd have uh or or even just get a b on a damn paper and just be super happy about that because I you know I I never I could never write and I never thought I'd pass this class what have you da 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 ad infinitum that is so rewarding and, and I take such pleasure in it. But there's also this other thing, which in some ways, and I don't wanna say that education is a high stakes, especially if you are a non-traditional student and you, you have this build up in your mind of failure. And what does this mean if I never get this? And if I get this, I can do anything. And that's very empowering. But so is giving somebody, especially a, a person who's a member of a disadvantaged community such as LGBT youth or in, in Appalachia or, or whatever it is, an ability to actually do what you're talking about, have a place that they can come to and have some stability, somebody who can help them navigate this bureaucracy, which as PhD students, we've done plenty of. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a skill. I mean, I I tell um, 
so bringing up like writing a paper and I'm actually teaching um so one of one of my institutions right now is Blue Ridge uh, Community College uh I'm at the uh, Transylvania campus Transylvania. Um, and I and I like I super believe in the in the mission of like community colleges um and one of the things that I spend, and I've always spent a lot of time on because I teach intro students, but like even more so is, you know, most of these students have not written, um, they may have written like a formal essay, but they've not written, you know, anything that, that even comes close to being a scholarly paper with like in-text citations and, and a reference page. And I mean, just the five paragraph essay has been like drilled into their poor little brains and like, you and I both know that that has almost no relationship to college writing reality. I mean, like that's a, that's a high school creation that is really not helpful. Um, and when I teach them about, you know, cause I say, you know, so you need this many scholarly sources, like they don't know what that is. Yeah. They don't know what that means. Like, you know, most of them, no one has said and, and it's not it's I'm not disparaging them like no one sat down with them and said okay here's how do you get to the library website and on the library website you click here and now let me teach you how to search for the kind of article that you want um the ways in which um I see K through 12 education failure is, I mean, all that stuff is a skill. And I, you know, it's great that you could like, you know, do well in, in AP US history, but even, you know, even quote unquote gifted students come without like understanding um, the bureaucracy that just is like, searching for the tool, searching for the tools that you need to then create this other thing in, in college. And I don't think that that is, you know, the fault of K through 12 educators. No, they, they have, let me just make that perfectly clear. Yeah. Um, we put so much on them beyond teaching because they're having to act as counselors and surrogate parents and you know, uh, you've seen the statistics too, I'm sure, of the number of kids who the only meal they get a day is is what they get at school. And we have, have put so much on our educational system that it wasn't really designed to carry, that it's yeah. it's amazing they get out with the, what they do get out with. In a lot For of sure. And, and, you know, the fact that we like tied it to property taxes, of course, is like, you know, from a, um, from a macro perspective, to me is probably the number one problem there is that we've we've tied it to property tax values, which practically ensures an unequal education. Yes. Um, my my son is in a really good district. Amazingly, like South Carolina schools, um, in my experience as a parent, are far superior to the that my stepchildren were in in Georgia but like I see 
you know, his district plan for COVID and they're one of the few districts that like made a plan. And as far as I have been able to maintain are sticking to that plan. And all I can think is like how much work that is for teachers. Cause I know how much work I'm doing right now. And I'm dealing mostly with adults. <laughs> so yeah, all the things are just, I feel like everything is bad. Just, just everything is bad. And I would like to fix it. Well, it sounds like you have a plan to, to at least fix some of it. And, uh, you know, and, and honestly, that's all any of us can do is, yeah, is work I towards fixing to, something. I just, I, I think that there's a, I, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't love the academy. I, I do. I mean, I am a lifelong learner. People know the line from Hamilton, but it's really from the West Wing, right? Like I'm always, I want to be a mind at work and I'm always looking for a mind at work. Um, but I just, as I get older, as, as I feel like I'm taking forever to finish this degree, I just want to be able to see that like something I have done in my life was beneficial for another person who wasn't a member of my immediate like family or social circle right while I actually think I can do a lot of that teaching having a regular teaching gig is super precarious I mean I I know that I have work in the spring but I don't know that you know I don't know what I have beyond that so you know I just want to make sure that I put all this education into my brain and uh, I'm doing, I'm spreading that resource out in, as much as I possibly can. I mean, I think sociology is magic. I think it's the one discipline that basically requires every other discipline and that includes the hard sciences. Um, and I, I think that every single person should have to take at least one sociology class. Um, but one of the reasons that I think it is magic is because of, you know, it, it's academic, but it's activist and, and it's application. And I want to take all of this information that I've learned um, about systemic oppression and now go do something to help fix that systemic oppression because otherwise I'm just writing papers for other academics to read. Yep. I do I think, think that we that need is... a lot more, we just need more public academics in general. Amen. Like we need more public historians. We need more public sociologists. We need more public scientists. I mean, we need more public mathematicians. I think, you know, when, you know, saying that, like, you have students, you know, I'm bad at math, or I'm bad at science, and that's only because either someone told them that, or someone, they, no one in their life sat down with them and explained, and that's the, that's the whole purpose of a public academic, is to explain to the public, and I think that a lot of this lack of understanding about how society works for the rest of us would, could be 
alleviated by academics pulling ourselves down from the tower and wading around in the mud, you know, with the rest of the unwashed masses, you know? Right. <laughs> and and so I think that there's what a, I want to do. Wrestling around in the mud, indeed. <laughs> um, I, I do agree with that. I do think that we need a lot more uh, public engagement and I, I hopefully we'll see that trend go because well, there's such a strong strand of anti-intellectualism which is as old as the country itself is so it's nothing yeah, that, it is. no nothing parties and, and everything like that um so yes I, I definitely agree with that and one thing that really helps with that and we need it so much because we touched on conspiracy theories earlier and people are always like, oh, conspiracy theories are really conspiracy theories if you disagree with them. No, there's some really ludicrous shit out there that people are right. saying. <laughs> you know, and, and I, it's not that I necessarily trust the government because I'm a historian. I know that they're t- the, the Tuskegee experiment, fucking right. prime example. Um, our, our government is often really shitty, but also that doesn't mean that they are Satanist pedophiles either. Right. Yeah, they're shitty in, like, you don't need to, like, make up some, (laughs) like, real wild shit. Like, they're terrible in just very boring, bureaucratic ways. The mundanity of evil, as uh, Hannah Argent called it. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, that's how you get away with it. Like, you don't, you don't need to, like, have a pedophile ring in the you know, basement of a pizza parlor, you really can just like separate children from their from their parents and put them in a yeah. cage with in with a with one of those like aluminum foil blankets. Yep. And then keep moving, right? Like the news the 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 news cycle just keeps moving forward and keeps moving forward. I mean, I was thinking, you know, earlier when talking about pants, like. I mean, he would absolutely expand that family separation policy. And we haven't even talked about family separation in months. No, not at all. I mean, I I do hear some activists out there talking about it, beating the drum as it were, but uh, on a national level. And that's that's just- We're like punch drunk. We are. Well, I mean, there's just something all the time. And and that's one thing that I, I will give Trump credit for, Trump because he does know how to manipulate the media, has managed to farm atrocities or controversies in such a way that there's always something. You can't spend any one time staring at the plate because there's always another plate in motion. So yeah. he, he has managed to, to do that incredibly well, whether by skill or chance. It's, it's hard to say, but I do think he is skillful at it. Um, I think he's skillful at it too. And I think it's dangerous to, to assume that just because he's, incompetent at something or ignorant about something um and you know i i think but i think it's dangerous to like you know assume that he's mentally unwell i mean maybe he is i I mean i'm mentally unwell and i'm pretty competent at quite a few things um i i think it's i think it's danger will robinson to assume that that being incompetent in one area or being ignorant about one subject means that you are not intelligent or capable 
Um, I think he's real good at like picking the people that he wants to be surrounded by um, and picking the thing that benefits him and his the most, which I think is one of the reasons. I, I mean, I just, the spinning plates and, and you know, how much worse can it get? Um, I had like an emergency uh, appointment with my therapist. It, it, I think it was last week. And I, I just was kind of beside myself um, feeling like, um, am I ever going to feel, am I ever going to feel mentally well? Um, yep. And I feel like this, this year is like making it, I was already struggling and this year, of course, is making it worse. One of the things that she told me is, is that, you know, of course we are hardwired for empathy and we should be and like be compassionate, but we were never meant to even know about the struggles of all people everywhere. And if you are an empathetic person, a compassionate person, and I absolutely think that most people are, this like overwhelming amount of information about the suffering in the world makes it makes it just paralyzes you and that's actually been part of, of my kind of ongoing determination for the future is I can know and understand about the oppression of millions and millions and millions of people all over the world but I cannot my energy just tossed out into the world does no good but if right. I take my energy and focus it on my little piece of the mountain over here, then maybe I can do, you know, some good that I can see that will help me be mentally well and also help alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, if we all like just try to alleviate some suffering in our own, and that's why I'm not a, if we all just like, tried to alleviate some suffering in our own little area like maybe we wouldn't uh, be in this precarious position I don't know I don't really feel I used to feel so strongly about like voting and electoral politics and now I feel almost ambivalent about it it's like the literal least amount of thing you can do <laughs> I do think it's a pretty low bar um and I'm involved in a lot of get out the vote and voter registration and voter curing work because I do think it's important. I, I, I think, think it's a low I bar. I think for it's a super important symbol. I just don't think it actually does much materially. Well, I, and in some ways I do agree with you, but I am also of the mind that if it didn't mean anything, they wouldn't try so hard to take it away. <laughs> for sure. So, um, sure. so, so it's it's one of those things. We are fighting a rigged system and we know it's a rigged system because point blank, the electoral college is rigged. It always has. Yeah, to. intentionally, like literally yeah. that was the whole purpose. <laughs> right, and it, and, it, and they've just found more and more ways to make it even more rigged by getting right. the Voting Rights Act and, and, and everything else and gerrymandering and all these other things. Um, so I, I do think voting is important, but most important, probably at the local level than the national level, because that's where the majority of the changes oh, that yeah. you want to see are, sure. are going to come. And also equally as important, if you're just going in and voting, 
straight blue or straight red because it's a team sport thing. That's that's not what it's meant to be. You're meant to be informed. You're meant to, to have some understanding of the issues and the candidates and what the platforms are. Yeah. And that requires not only some time and effort to dig into these things, but uh, uh, some media literacy so that you can separate the rampant bullshit propaganda that is a lot of campaigning to the truth of what their records and who they are yeah. as people really is. Um, and I think that that requires a diligence that in the society that we are in as fast paced as it is, when people are having to work two to three jobs to, to make ends meet and then deal with their family and try and have time for their mental health and everything else, it's very fucking difficult. And I get that, but unfortunately still very necessary. Yeah, no, I, um, I actually, you know, because of where I live, um, voting in the Democratic primary, like, is absolutely 100% pointless. So I, I voted in the, in the GOP primary, because it, if I'm going to be represented at the local level, like, you know, my city council member, like, I mean, there were things on the ballot for, like, um, like city treasurer, uh, council members, um, there were some school board like seats up and in some of those they're running unopposed. Yeah. Like there, there's somebody that's primarying them, but there was nobody on the democratic ticket. So, um, yeah, I, I went to like Votopedia or one of those, um, that like help you like fill out your ballot and just pick like the least offensive person for each one that I could. And like, I had my little like guide with me and just, I don't know any of these people. I never met any of these people, but the democratic primary ballot was like for two things. And they were both um, either state or national uh, positions. And like, that doesn't affect me. That person is not choosing whether or not my taxes go up and how they're allocated you know I want I want to know like who's going to put sloth on the on the ballot for our next time like yep. who's you know who's interested in education I mean I but even um so yes I absolutely believe that you should you should vote locally not just because that's you know who I mean that generally is who has the most effect on your personal life but also those are usually the few um one person one vote opportunities that we have you know they're not affected by things like the electoral college um and may not even be as affected by whether or not your little city or county is like super red or super blue because they're even within like one party there may be a little more space for variation because it's just assumed if you are running in Anderson County, South Carolina, that you're a Republican. All right. So we got that out of the way. Now I can tell you my, my positions on things and there might be more variation there than you would think. Yeah, that's 100% Um, because where I grew up in Kentucky, it was similar. It's changed to Republican now, but when I was younger, it was, everything was Democrat. There might be one Republican mm -hmm. person running for one thing, but all the action was on the Democratic side in those primaries. And you've got to, if you want, you know, they represent you too. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I, my, um, so my, my girlfriend, sorry, again with the dogs, my girlfriend registered to vote for the first time um, was uh, without telling too much of their business, without asking them first, um, basically was told several decades ago that they did not have the right to vote and was told that by somebody in authority and just like thought that that he would be in trouble if he tried to register um and that even if he did try to register even if he didn't get in trouble it would still like it, he was not allowed um and you and i both know that like that is a lie that gets told to a lot of people yeah. And so I just kept saying, oh, my God, just register like nothing. You're not going to get in trouble. Like they're just going to tell you no if you can't. And so for the first time in a long time, I am actually kind of excited about Election Day because uh, I think there is kind of something in, in that like hokey little house on the prairie vibe about, sure. you know, Americana about going yeah. with somebody to vote for the first time you know, we're in an area where, you know, Lindsey Graham may actually like lose his seat. So yeah, I, I, yeah, look, I got a Jamie Harrison sign in my yard and, and I'm, I'm pretty far, like, I don't like to use the word anarchist just because like most, I feel like most people have either one or the other understanding of what that means. And there's like a lot in the middle but I'm definitely, definitely, definitely really, 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 really left. And I'm way left of Jamie Harrison, but he's a good person. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he wants good things for South Carolina and he really like it has a credible chance to prevent this guy from getting a fourth term. And, you know, South Carolina needs to expand Medicaid. Like, yeah. I, I have come to view, and I used to view voting as if you do not completely line up with my beliefs, then why am I voting for you? But now I see it more as a harm reduction tactic. That's exactly how I view it. Like, it is the absolute least amount of work to like, I mean, my polling place is, you know, less than a mile. I could walk to it if I wanted to. Um it, it it may not like like give give me anything, but if it prevents some bad, then you should do that. Yeah. I want it to never be like I I I feel like the top of the ticket is really whatever. But everything under that I I, I do think that you know it, it is one person one vote and like you said if it didn't matter at all then i don't i don't think the voter suppression tactics are about the presidential race it's about preventing stacy abrams from being the governor of georgia right? right it's about preventing jamie harrison from representing south carolina yeah it's about keeping that city council reactionary mm-hmm. i mean here in in anderson you know, they had the, the, they had one town hall or, or city council meeting, which was not well publicized. 
about the Civil War Memorial. And literally, from what I understand, the, the response was take it to Columbia because South Carolina has one of those laws that but the, the state government like protects these these monuments, right? Yeah. But if you had a more diverse group of people on the city council, I mean, you can do whatever you want. Like, you know, there are a lot of ways to interpret the law. And like, a lot of the ways that the law works in America are is easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission. So, you know, just having a diversity of, of thought on, on just basic ways to to act within the law to do what you want for a community. So um, I I think that that you should vote and I think that you should run. And I say that as someone who who has always wanted to run for office but am terrified. <laughs> um, kind of for some of the reasons when when you when you had um, Angela uh, Mayfield shout out. Um, Georgia House District 67, please vote and donate to Angela. You know, she and I talk a lot about like the fear of running, and yeah. you know, she just like she's like okay, because you know that everything about your entire life is going to come out. But once I'm telling you, like it's that that's that's another future goal is that as soon as as soon as all of that opposition research coming out won't hurt my my kids you know so basically after he graduates yeah um I definitely I've always wanted to like sit on a school board or city council um because I think we need I mean if, if you're if you have an advanced degree like that that's a place that you can you can really make a difference is like your local school board so I do think you should vote and I do think you should run. I just don't think it's going to save us. It'll take a lot more than that. Yes, I do agree with that. <laughs> the vote itself is not going to save us. Just like uh, my final thoughts uh, on the Supreme Court for this episode, if our democracy needed to be saved by an 87-year-old cancer patient, it wasn't working in the first place. Yeah. So, um, and that is not to diminish her or the work that she did over the years, but that's just the... the, the it shouldn't come down to no fucking and, justice vote. And like she, you know, she's a problematic fave too. Like, you know, she didn't have it all together either. No. And um, nobody does. I mean, she, no. And and that's you know, for all of the good that I feel like she did, she also like, you know, came down pretty on the wrong side of history when it comes to native people, yep. their land. Yeah. Um, their their right to not be um, environmentally abused came down, you know, on the side of like business a few times that you know we're everybody does some good and some bad. Hopefully, our balance sheet is in our favor when we you know leave this mortal coil. But yeah, it can never be it can never be on any one person because no one person is gonna have all of the right right goals right because we're all biased and we all have an agenda even ruth bader ginsburg exactly i mean she was a well-off white lady ivy educated i mean you know 
you know, we, we can't, we, no one person, like, yeah. Anyway, I'm agreeing with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I've had you on here for a little over an hour and an hour is all I ever ask anybody to sacrifice to speak with me. Um, Before I close it up and give you a chance to promote anything that you want to, uh, I just wanted to see if there was any topics that you wanted to speak about today that we didn't get to as we rambled through everything. No, I feel kind of goofy. I'm usually a lot more, I feel like I'm usually a lot more put together. Um, And so I I hope that your editing process is not awful. (laughs) It won't be. And if you listen to it and you're like, this lady is like no good. That's okay. I won't be offended. (laughs) So I no, I didn't really come in with any um, like preconceived ideas about what we were going to talk about. Um, I just like it when people like invite me on their platforms and let me talk. That's that's what I do (laughs) because a because I'm lazy and that means I don't have to do a whole lot of prep. So. But thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. We'll have to do it again sometime. Um, I wish you all the best in in surviving the rest of this crazy (laughs) year. Thank you. Um, But yeah, no, we'll definitely keep in touch on Twitter and and other ways and um, let people know how they can find you and help you out. So you can find me on the Bird app at at the Little Pecan. Um, I've been trying to like... uh, kind of squash my social media footprint over the past year because it gives me anxiety. Um, please donate to your local abortion fund. If you're in the Carolinas, that is the Carolina Abortion Fund. If you are uh, in Georgia, um, that is ARC Southeast, but you can also just go to um, nnas.org and find your local abortion fund. Um, support uh, arming working folks in the proletariat and disarming the state by going to the Socialist Rifle Association and and becoming a member and learning about community defense. Um, You should look up your local bail fund and give to them. Um, White supremacy is bad. Yes, it is. Nice. Well, <laughs> so, help help others and interrogate your own prejudices every day as best you can. The end. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Thanks, and- Ben. Sorry, I really do feel like I just rambled and like was not very well put together. So. I enjoyed it though, and that's what matters. Okay. So. <laughs> I mean, I love to just sit around and talk, but sometimes I. I um, sometimes my me- my medications make it hard for me to like collect my thoughts, and as I like to tell my students, it, it breaks my internal thesaurus. So like the word <laughs> I'm thinking of just won't come. So um, I absolutely enjoyed it, and hopefully I am better put together than I thought I was. I think you were. Really All right, Ben. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. And thank you for listening to the Evoking History Podcast.